Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Raven Chacon. Raven is a composer, performer, and installation artist from Fort Defiance, Navajo Nation. As a solo artist, Chacon has exhibited, performed, and had other works performed at LA CMA, the Renaissance Society, the San Francisco Electric Music Festival, Red Cat, Vancouver Art Gallery, End Times Festival, the Kennedy Center, and so on and so on. As a member of Post Commodity from 2009 to 2018, he co-created artworks presented at the Whitney Biennial Carnegie International 57, as well as a two-mile-long land art installation, Repellent Fence. A recording artist for over 22 years, Jacon has appeared on more than 80 releases on various national and international labels. His 2020 Manifest Destiny opera, Sweetland, co-composed with Du Yun, received critical acclaim from the LA Times, the New York Times, and the New Yorker, and was named 2021 Opera of the Year by the Music Critics Association of America. Since 2004, he has mentored over 300 high school Native composers in writing of new string quartets of the Native American Composer Apprenticeship Project. Chacon is the recipient of the United States Arts Fellowship in Music, the Creative Capital Award in Visual Arts, the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation Artist Fellowship, the American Academy's Berlin Prize for Music Composition, and the Bema Center's Re Kanoko Award. And in 2022, he served as the Pew Fellowship in Residence. His solo artworks are in the collection of the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Smithsonian's American Art Museum, and the National Museum of the American Indian, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Getty Research Institute, and the University of New Mexico Art Museum, and various private collections. Let's jump into this interview with Raven. Raven, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really an honor to have you here. Thank you, Joe. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your background, where you're from. My name is Raven Chacon. I'm a composer and artist. I'm talking to you right now from Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where I've been based most of my life. But uh, I also grew up on the Navajo Reservation in a town called Chinle, Arizona. And so the family was between there and Albuquerque through my youth. And, uh, but eventually the family ended up here, and I've been in Albuquerque most of my life. Lived in Los Angeles for a little bit, and um, somewhere in there I was uh, you know, always on the road. What was... Um... So the the work that uh, you do, um, it's based uh, both uh, visually but also um, in sound and music. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, your your inspirations to the work that you've created? Yeah, I would say that it's entirely sound. All of it is is meant to be sound and music. That's the the background I come from. That's the training I was involved in and the, the schooling that I that I uh, had gone through was all for composing music and learning about sound, learning how to record sound. And somewhere in there, uh, I started making work that didn't fit on a stage 
and maybe didn't even fit on a score and maybe even didn't fit on a recording, you know, on a, you know, used to put out CDs or records, you know, even cassette tapes. And, it, and even that wasn't the, the correct medium for the work. So it started being that there were ways to exhibit this kind of work in more kind of visual art contexts, you know, uh, uh, art, art exhibitions or even um, other kinds of actions, more maybe performance or video. And, uh, but I, I, I think it always starts with an idea about sound, about making sound, playing music, uh, and, and thinking about sound. Uh, can you talk about uh, your, your biggest influences, uh, both growing up uh, and today? Well, it was, um, it wasn't that I had an influence and then I wanted to replicate it or anything like that. It was that I was completely maybe, uh, disappointed in the music I was hearing. You know, I, I, I appreciated playing music. I surrounded myself with people who played better than me. I, you know, I played guitar and piano and this huge fascination with instruments you know all of the all of the instruments you find in the in the classical genre you know the western classical genre which of course come from other places they come from asia and they come from africa they come from all over the world but the way that they've been developed in the genre of classical music was something that was surely an influence and something that i wanted to to work with so to find music that used those tools as as their generator for sound uh, was was an influence, but I, I didn't have access, you know, in in uh, kind of rural New Mexico and Arizona, um, to a lot of what would we would call experimental music, let's say. And you know, there was a lot of other kinds of musical influences: rock music, metal, thrash metal music. Uh, I, I played in a mariachi group for a while. I, I also played in a you know a group with traditional Pueblo and Navajo singers. So any opportunity I could find to play music, I would take it. But for my own music, I think it was, I was not hearing what I wanted to hear. So it really came out of that, just wanting to make sound and, and hear something that I'd never heard before. How have, uh, have you developed your career, uh, both in college, uh, post-college? It was told to me somewhere that, you know, I, I should go to, if I wanted to be a serious musician, I should study music in the university. And um, so that's what I did. I went and got a degree in, uh, in music composition, you know, an undergrad degree at the University of New Mexico. And that was, I mean, I appreciated that because that did give me this foundation for understanding things like orchestration and the canon of, of Western classical music and uh, like I was saying before, recording techniques. And also was, that was the first time maybe being exposed to, uh, you know, the music that was happening in the 20th century, the experiments with electronics, with, you know, atonality. And, um, but still, I think I, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't in an environment that, uh, showed me that there was a potential to do this as a career, you know, at, at best, maybe one got a degree and then went and taught this stuff to, to others. And that was not what I was wanting to do either. And so it took, it took some time. It took, it took me 
realizing, you know, this, I wasn't going to find this community or this, this, um, this kind of artwork in New Mexico at the time. This was in the year 2000, 2001. And so that's when I went to Los Angeles and studied at Cal Arts with some phenomenal composers who were becoming heroes of mine. I mean, I can't say that they were heroes of mine as a, as a youth or anything, but um, people like James Tenney, Odata Leo Smith, you know, composers who, who were, you know, um, completely radical and, and groundbreaking in what they do and having the opportunity to not only study with them, but be surrounded with other, other, uh, musicians and composers and artists and a, a place like Cal arts is, is, uh, is interesting because you're, you're in this building that actually doesn't have that many windows and goes about six stories under the ground and everybody's in there, to, there together, you know, dancers, filmmakers, visual artists, sculpture, sculptors, uh, composers, yeah. uh, anybody who's, who's interested in art is all in this building together. There's huge potential to collaborate and see a lot of work. And after that, I still, you know, I got, I got an MFA, but I still didn't really know, like, you know, people could do this kind of thing. And that was when I decided to start playing a lot of music, you know, of my own music which is kind of noise and had found some other collaborators in Los Angeles. And we would go and tour the United States together in the, in the car, you know, put our, put our uh, custom built instruments and, and uh, custom built microphones and load up in the car and go driving all across the country, you know, and, and playing, you know, for five people in, in every town we encounter and, uh, you know, you, you start to develop your own sound, but you also get to meet others who are doing this kind of thing, who who uh, are fans of this kind of music. You know, it's very kind of noise, abrasive, uh, not mainstream at all sound. And so I did that for years. And, uh, and you know, I was, I was doing other kinds of work on the side, too. I mean, I was I've always... Uh, composed music on, you know, the dots on paper, writing for classical musicians. And I was also getting commissions at that time. So this is a whole separate tract of, of work, you know, that I was doing with, with um, that would be more in the kind of chamber music uh, genre. And, uh, and also, like I was saying, I, I had ideas for works that didn't fit in either. They were maybe ideas for, for sound installations or uh, video works. And so it was around the time, maybe it was 2008, uh, I was asked to join this collective post-commodity that was just forming. And uh, they asked me to found the group with them. And I actually didn't, couldn't do that because I was on a, on a panel uh, that was awarding them a, a grant for their first project. So, <laughs> so I said, you know, I can't, I can't do the first project with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's get back after you're done with that one. And so it was the second project they did. I, I believe it was their second where uh, we cut the hole out of the floor in a museum to expose the earth underneath. 
and uh, part of the idea there, as I as we were working on this, would be to amplify the ground. You know, as so I have a microphone hanging from the ceiling that would uh, pick up whatever we thought the Earth was saying to us. And this is an idea that's been a part of my work, you know, 10 years previous, you know, making field recordings of quiet places on the Navajo reservation in New Mexico and amplifying those, you know, to their maximum. And so that, that, uh, you know, joining that group and working with that group, I think that was for me, a learning trajectory in, in understanding how the art world works, you know, what, what budgets can be like, what, uh, you know, the, thinking up a proposal, installing work. I mean, I, I've always, uh, I've never been afraid of doing that kind of work. I thought that was the funnest part actually was to go get out a, you know, a drill and, you know, get out some speaker wire and go make something, you know? Um, and, and so th- those three, those three, I think areas of, of what I do all, all came together in some way, but also they they continue to stay their own kind of separate line of work that I do. When you were on the road, uh, was there anything out there uh, that really surprised you or changed the way uh, you looked at the the way you were doing things out there? You mean from others? Like the, yeah. That others? Yeah. Well, I can't say all positive. I mean, an abnormal amount of men doing this, you know, mm-hmm. more than women, um, not always folks of color. So that in a way influenced me, uh, you know, when I'd come back to New Mexico, I, I would, I, I opened a venue with, with some other folks. I've, I've had this record label also since actually since the year 2000, uh, it started off as a fake record label just to pr- release my own work. So it looked like I was on a legitimate label, but um, around this time, you know, every time I'd be done with one of these these trips, I'd come back to New Mexico and f- encourage people to make music, um, show people, you know, that they can make these contact microphones or, uh, you know, we were, we were getting involved in playing things like uh, John Zorn has this game called Cobra. It's kind of an improvisation game, doing things like that, maybe demystifying experimental music or, or find uh, providing opportunities for people to get involved. Uh, and like I said, yeah, women and folks of color, native folks, Chicano folks. And so that's start, what started happening around here was this scene kind of emerging of, of people um, doing this. And, and so I would say that that was an influence of going out there and, and not to say that every, every place was like that. I remember some very diverse scenes and, San Francisco and Miami and, uh, you know, other places, Texas, but, um, but it was something, uh, very, uh, very rare. I think, you know, it was still very male dominated. Um, but, but uh, some of the good thing, I mean, just wild experimentation that is not in an academic setting, uh, uh, people building their own instruments, making, you know, building costumes, every, every style, every little city was different. And, and, um, a lot of, a lot of reciprocation when those folks would be on tour, I'd host them in Albuquerque and, um, you know, starting to, to just, uh, appreciate 
this this genre and it's existed i mean for a long time it's just i found myself i finally found the people that i <laughs> that i think I, I make music that uh you know similar to uh the, the next question is about opportunities um you know how i think younger when earlier in our charisma we're younger uh we we seek opportunities we really we hunt for those and as we move along those opportunities eventually come to seek us and so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that um how maybe those have changed over the years yeah that's a good question i gotta think on that one for a second i know that when i first started doing this there were probably you could count the number of Native American composers on one hand. There was not that many of us. And um, there was an initiative, uh, I think it started in about 2004, where a group of us got together to just seek out others who were doing this kind of work, at least as it relates to chamber music. So there were uh, people like Brent Michael Davids, Jared Tate, um, uh, Lewis Ballard, who was uh, you know, elder, uh, one of the first uh, recognized native composers and um, Barbara Crowall, some other folks, but this was kind of a time when they, you know, the internet was still hasn't you know, <laughs> definitely wasn't like it was now. Not everybody had a web page. You still had to find who these people who, who was working out there. And so um, that was one of the goals that we did. And that's how we ended up, you know, awarding post commodity this grant. But I think back then one really had to go out there. Like I said, literally go out there, get in the car and go, go play a gig somewhere eight hours away to five people. And, you know, maybe sell some cassette tapes and then make some gas money and get to the next one. And, uh, and I don't know if that kind of thing is necessary any, anymore. One can upload their music. One can, uh, share what they're doing on Instagram, you know, and everybody sees it and becomes aware. I'm not the type of person who has a mailing list or anything. Like that. <laughs> I feel guilty for doing that. You know, for, for, if I had one, I, I, I feel like I'd be spamming people. And, you know, some of this kind of social media seems to, seems to make it more digestible. I appreciate seeing my friends work, you know, when they're doing something, that's how I find out, Oh, they're going to, you know, Chinupa has this thing going on, you know, and over here, I'm going to see it. Um, and so, so I think that's changed. I mean, that's been huge. That's given visibility to people and what they're doing. And of course, as we've seen its impact on how it can relay our urgencies, you know, what, what concerns us, you know, the, the whole thing that happened with Standing Rock, you know, that encroachment in that pipeline wouldn't have had the legs without this, these connections that happen on the, on the internet and, and the visibility that's been provided. One of the projects that I do is teaching young folks uh, on the reservation, high school students to write uh, string quartets. And they have a task of having to write these um, with music notation. That's, that's the rule. And, you know, I'm trying not to impose another kind of Western language on them. However, it's a, it's the best language that can relate to the people that are going to be playing the music. And to the accessibility of that, I, I don't think, I haven't seen a change in that in 20 years necessarily. The schools are still in the same situation where arts are not prioritized. 
the resources aren't always there to um, to allow us to come in, you know. And sometimes the even the attitude of us coming in is not always well received. In in that um, they want the students to focus on something they can have a career in and not not art. And I always I always say, you know, people ask me this question often. Is, you know, are there any music programs on, on, let's say, the Navajo Reservation? And yes, the answer is there's a couple really good ones. Uh, but the reason why is that the, there's a probably a really good football team or basketball team mm. at those schools. So they need a marching band. <laughs> so they pro- mm. that's when they said, okay, now let's have a music teacher who can show them, you know, because we're winning, you know. <laughs> and if that's what it takes, that's great. But, uh, but I, you know, unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of accessibility there, you know, a lot of opportunities. And and that's why I continue to do what I do is, you know, at least I can get in there and, and you know, teach them. And I'll continue to do that until I can't anymore. I think that's great. Um, you know, it's that seems to be the case all over in the arts, uh, you know, for accessibility. Um it really needs to come from outside the school system. Unfortunately, um, you know, for myself, there was a, an art program. Uh, that was my only art education in school. Uh, my high school didn't offer art classes. And, you know, as a way to pay it forward um, in, the, in the work that I do now is I have a summer art program for high school students. And so we create that opportunity for those young people uh, to be able to come in and, and learn from uh, really accomplished artists. And, mm-hmm. So that's great. So hearing uh, what you're doing and the efforts you're making, uh, I can fully appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at a certain point, um, you know, I, I, well, I, what I should say is that I, the technology has been able to help out a lot. You know, we've, we've witnessed this during COVID and lockdown where, um, you know, sometimes, uh, we've been able to do these lessons online for some of the students, but again, that, that divide is definitely apparent on the reservation where you say you have students who don't even have electricity or, you know, let alone internet. So, you know, we, we were trying to accommodate those students as well, but it, it, it does impress me that we can do the, you know, that I could teach a student across the country on the internet and, um, it's not ideal, but it can it can happen, and and maybe that's some kind of uh, going to provide some kind of relief to our carbon footprint, to other accessibility of having artists be able to reach more people via you know uh, Zoom or whatever. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to advertise Zoom or any company, but right. the streaming this let's say the streaming art talks and and podcasts, all of this. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to put, you know, learn about who's making work out there and, and see an artist talk. So for the 18 to 20 year old that's listening to this, uh, what would you want to say to them? Well, um, if you're an artist, I, I actually cannot give any good advice to those artists. Let me say, let me, let me say that over. Um, I'll start with if you're a musician, any advice uh, would be to do like I did. And I, it's if you make music, you can't just wait around and expect somebody to hear it. You can upload things onto the Internet and so forth, like I said before, before, and people will hear that. 
But I think at a certain point, you have to go out there and perform the music and not be afraid to, like I said, play for two people that show up. There's been many times I've performed music and uh, I only played for the other people who were on the same bill or, you know, the door guy. And uh, you just do that over and over and over. And hopefully you develop your own identity as a musician. And you do whatever it takes to get out there. I mean, borrow a relative's car and go play in the, in the next city. Don't just perform in your own city, you know, over, over and over again. Um, for visual artists, I'm not sure. I, you know, I didn't go that route. But I think it's a bit of the same thing is that if you if – you're not finding opportunities coming to you, then one can always make their own opportunities. One can go in with a group of other artists and make a space, you know, open your own gallery or your own uh, artist project space and share resources. That's a big one. Uh, that's something that post commodity uh, did early on is, is we all came from different skill sets. We made work that was, that, that none of us could have made on our own, you know, the, the, the sum of it were, was greater than the parts and not only in our, our skill sets, but also in our shared resources. You know, one of us had a video camera. I had a bunch of microphones. The other had a, you know, a space, a studio. And so you, you, you find collectives that can, you know, you can work with and collaborate with. one thing I've learned uh, through starting this podcast was really discovering the, the community of, of artists getting together and creative uh, creating collectives like this. Um, you know, the, the urban five out of um, Oklahoma uh, post commodity uh, and there's, there's so many others uh, but it's always exciting to hear uh, groups getting together and working together. Even, even the, the comedians, you know um, like the, the 1491s, you know, and the group that, I mean, they're, they're all getting together and creating TV shows now, you know, creating opportunities mm -hmm. in entertainment that didn't really wasn't available for, for us 15, even 10 years ago. Oh yeah. So I think, I think there's strength in numbers in that sense, you know, where we come together and work collectively uh, for I mean, the greater good. Yeah. You know, there's some other newer ones too. There's a, um, there's a, a collective called new red order which is another uh, indigenous uh, arts collective. I, I like to think they're, they're the ones taken over from, from where post-commodity left off. And uh, you also have some curatorial collectives. There's one called Cousin, which is a filmmaking collective that's, um, you know, has a, a regranting project where they're helping other filmmakers, emerging filmmakers make projects happen. They're putting together screenings, uh, you know, helping, helping folks make work. And I think that's, that's very interesting in a, in a way, way, as you say, to, you know, pay it forward. Hmm. So where, where can our listener find uh, your work, uh, be able to connect with you uh, online? Uh, where, where can they go? I have several Bandcamp pages up. Um, I've always, I've always been funny about organizing these things. Um, well, I have a website, spiderwebsinthesky.com. And from there, one can find almost all of the projects that I, I'm involved in or have been involved in. There's some on there that I don't haven't put up. And it's because they're either anonymous or I don't uh, talk to the people anymore, maybe. 
<laughs> or or uh it's just some other other thing i have i have a a group of works called black works and i don't know if those anybody will ever see those um they're just different they they might not even be me um but uh so i have some bandcamp pages under under my name raven chacon i have uh, a project called the endlings it's a duo with myself and a musician john dietrich of the band Deerhoof. Uh, there is, I have another project called white people killed them with John and, uh, amazing drummer named Marshall Tremell, who's based in, uh, Oakland, California. Um, and what else am I, what, um, yeah, uh, Instagram, you can find me on there. I post a lot of uh, upcoming gigs on, on there more than I'll put them on the website. I think that's a better way to find out if I got something going on live but of course you know this is a weird time for live events and uh, not much is planned I do have uh, as of uh, on this Saturday I don't know when this will air but this Saturday I'm playing a concert with Chinupa Hans Galuber at the Albuquerque Museum okay so uh, Chinupa wouldn't consider himself a musician but he has made some instruments we're going to uh, play <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This was really great having you on here. Um, I'll put links uh, in the show notes uh, to your website and to your IG page and all that. And so people can connect with you there. Cool. Thank you, Joe. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Raven again for his time and sharing his story with us. What is so great about having an artist like Raven on is that he demonstrates that you don't have to be strictly a visual artist or a musician per se uh, when being creative. He combines the concepts of the two and creates something so unique and so really incomparable, um, one in Indian country, but across the U.S. too. He, he's so unique in what he does and so thoughtful. And I really enjoyed this conversation with him. But I think combined with all of that is his efforts to collaborate with other artists, which I think is an amazing example for many to follow. Uh, His ability to move within groups, to share space and creativity with groups, and doing it in good faith is so important and so inspiring. Uh, It just created one really great conversation, but he's also creating a network and a legacy of work that is so, uh, so appreciative and so important for all of us. And so, yeah, you know, it was it was great to be able to sit down and to share some time with him. And I really appreciated that. So uh, there are some links to his works. If he's in your area, go check him out, support him. Uh, he's an amazing individual. Uh, I look forward to connecting with him down the road here uh, when I'm able to get down south. Or if he manages to find himself up in Fargo, uh, that would be great, too, to be able to uh, link up with him and see what he's doing. So uh, I look forward to that. So, Raven, thank you so much. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please, join us next time as we speak with another incredible individual. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me at Canna, that's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, across social media, and at the plainsart.org website. There you can find our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. 
If you have a suggestion for me, for someone to talk to, please look me up on Facebook and message me. I'd really like to hear from you. So take care and we will see you next time. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.